If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He preserved his life precisely because he disguised his majesty. He got away with it because people took him to be an ordinary subject. So any notion thereafter that Charles sometimes played at being king would be quite fitting given his early experiences. That was Claire Jackson talking about the early life of Charles II. He had stopped off at St Helena where the people had said to him, we know we live on a rock, but the poor people of Ascension live on a cinder. And that was Peter Gibbs discussing the unusual history of a small island in the South Atlantic. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of April 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. 
Our first interview this week is with Claire Jackson, a historian based at the University of Cambridge, who has also presented documentaries on BBC Two. Claire is the author of a new biography of Charles II, the 17th century king who restored the monarchy following the civil war and interregnum. A few weeks back, our reviews editor, Matt Elton, paid a visit to Clare in Cambridge to find out more. So the first question really is, uh, how did you get involved in this series of books? And how did they affect how you approached the project, I suppose? Um, Well, the idea was put to me um, and it was a really appealing format. I think there's a sort of democracy about it that all monarchs get the same word length, 25,000 words, no matter how long the reign or how significant that period. Um, So that appealed. Um, And secondly... It was actually that size that appealed. Um, 25,000 words is more like an extended essay. It offered the chance perhaps for a meditation on a monarch rather than a sort of detailed cradle-to-grave narrative. When I was a student, I really enjoyed Lytton Strachey's Queen Victoria. And that had made a very powerful point to me when I was a student that actually if you could distill the essence of a life, it didn't need to be you know, a great doorstop. Mm. Did it affect how you approached his life? Because obviously you can't fit everything into, into that word count. I think I was tempted by the idea of doing something that wasn't cradle-to-grave narrative. I think um, biography is changing, and I've been the ones that I'd enjoyed recently had been primarily thematic or had taken moments in individuals' lives. And that seemed particularly well-suited to Charles II because... I was trying to move away from the idea that somehow in these 25,000 words, I was going to produce an entirely radical new interpretation of the essence of this person's um, personality. The small format lent itself to a thematic approach uh, rather than assuming I could somehow penetrate this monarch's personality uh, and produce a radically new interpretation. This was a monarch who himself cared as much about how he was perceived as himself. So um, that was really the motivation for doing it thematically. Mm. You write in the book about how instability shaped both the country and the personality during this reign. Um, Obviously, a lot of that instability was during his formative years, wasn't it? Yes, and I think that was another thing I really wanted to do, that instead of assuming that Charles II only becomes interesting in 1660 once he becomes king, uh, he rides into London at the start of his reign when he's already 30, and those first three decades have been profoundly important on the type of person that is going to be king from 1660 onwards. Um, So his early years, born in 1630, his first decade is spent, uh, his childhood, um, during Charles I's personal rule. So his parents have this Baroque, sophisticated court, but very sort of detached from, that's how Charles I preserved majesty by creating distance with his people. But then Charles II's um, child is is prematurely cut short when his father's authority starts to disintegrate, first in Scotland and then in Ireland and then in England. So really from the age of nine or ten onwards, um, he's either exposed to... um, sort of great political instability, or actually from about the age of 11 onwards, uh, actually with his father constantly on campaign, if not leading armies or being present, then witnessing um, the key moments of the civil wars, um, pitched battles such as Edge Hill. Uh, When he's 14, he's given nominal command of the West Country forces and parts company from his father in 1645, actually never sees his father again, uh, and goes into exile, um, flees into exile um, when chased by the parliamentarians. Um, Spends a long period in exile then until after his father's execution, returns um, for a period between 1650 and 1651 to Scotland. That ends in military disaster. Um, And perhaps the episode that shaped him most powerfully was 
um, the aftermath of the defeat at the Battle of Worcester in 1651, um, massive royalist rout, uh, and Charles then spends 43 days on the run. Um, he's only 21. He's relying on his own subject's courage. I mean, it gives him a unique insight into how ordinary subjects lived in a way that no other monarch really had. Um, eventually, he manages to get to Shoreham and over to France, but he has spent... 43 days that both sort of simultaneously haunt him and then inspire him for the rest of his life, particularly those, and, and become very central to Restoration public memory. Mm. Those That day spent sheltering in an boscable oak in Worcestershire explains why something like the Royal Oak is perhaps you know, one of the most common pub names in England. Um, but then that those tales of sort of survival... Um, it's also quite telling in that he preserved his life precisely because he disguised his majesty. He got away with it because people took him to be an ordinary subject. So any notion thereafter that Charles sometimes played at being king would be quite fitting given that, that given his early experiences. And thereafter he had a decade of impoverent, impoverished, um, itinerant wanderings around continental Europe, um, never really very sure um, whether he would reclaim his thrones and having to act in ways that um, both gave sucker and enthusiasm to royalist activities back home, but didn't mean that he put himself in jeopardy by going back to England every time he was given the notion. So playing that waiting game and ultimately being invited back by the very same army that had executed his father was you know, perhaps the least predictable of all outcomes. It's an extraordinary start to your life. Um, do we get a sense of how he saw his father, how, how, how he regarded his father? Um, he's not somebody who's given to putting a lot down on paper. Um, certainly his father's memory and what he regarded as an execrable murder, um, he, he denounced. But he wasn't consumed by what seemed like a desire to avenge everybody that had ever taken up arms against his father. I mean, one of the most remarkable documents of the, of the Restoration is the Declaration of Breda that he issues in April 1660 before he comes back as king. And that makes very clear that apart from a few named regicides, um, the people who had actually signed his father's death warrant, um, he's offering an amnesty to everyone um, and really hoping to sort of heal and mend... Um, you know, the, the great divisions of the civil wars. Um, in terms of other key figures during his reign, who do you pick out as being particularly notable in, in shaping his story? Ironically, part of his experiences in, um, in exile are that he's unlikely to vest total confidence in any one individual. Um, you know, all of his counsellors say, um, you know, he's inscrutable, he's got He's got the greatest art of concealing himself of any man alive. He's somebody who's the master of the mixed signal, who's schooled himself to become an enigma. Um, and that, you know, if that's how contemporaries found him, then that's a challenge for biographers. Um, so although this is somebody who's very affable and very gregarious, um, it's quite hard to identify people in whom he placed complete um, sort of trust. There are key figures at different times in his reign that manage... Um, political business on his behalf. Um, there are also sort of key confidants and, and mistresses that are also key courtiers. Um, but this is also a sense, this is somebody who also keeps their own counsel. The other uh, aspect in which he's notable is culture, because he, he kind of ruled over this period of extraordinary culture. How, how did he shape that and how should we see that in this light, I suppose? I think that's probably one of the reasons we think we know Charles very well, partly because of Samuel Pepys. Mm -hmm. So the most accessible, detailed, sort of irresistibly interesting diarist, Samuel Pepys, just happens to be writing for the first decade of Charles's reign. So some ways we think we know Charles 
perhaps better than we do. Um, but no, I mean, Charles is in a way synonymous with the Restoration. So when we think about cavalier costume, even Charles's image of the sort of, you know, the long, the wigs um, and the theatricality and the opening of Restoration theatres um, and the epithet of the, the, um, the subtitle of the biography is the Star King to try and sort of capture some of that star quality mm. at the same time as looking at things like the growth of um, the Royal Society and interest in sort of scientific discoveries as well. Mm. So, yes, I mean, he was centrally involved and interested in all of these developments in restoration culture, mm. as well as in things like architecture. I mean, this was somebody who, unlike any other monarch, had spent over a decade at various European courts, had actually seen all the European palaces and royal courts, and took a great interest both in rebuilding bits of London, even before the fire of London, but then was centrally involved in its rebuilding afterwards. Mm. That star quality is obviously central. Um, how much was Charles aware of how other people saw him? And how unusual is that in a monarch, do you think? I think it is quite unusual, but then I think he was placed in an unusual position. I mean, no other monarch had succeeded to the throne after their fathers being publicly put on trial and executed by Parliament. No other monarch succeeded after 11 years of unprecedented Republican innovation. Uh, so there's evidence that once the Restoration was becoming a constitutional probability that the exile court did everything they could to get images of Charles, whether they were pen portraits, sort of essays or um, prints or sort of images for tankards. I mean, it's why we've got more images of Charles II surviving even than his father, to whom a sort of cult of martyrdom later attached. They weren't all of brilliant quality. I mean, Charles II was somebody who had little patience for having his portrait done, so didn't. this wasn't artistry of the type of Van Dyck that captured his father. But nevertheless, in terms of wine bottles, snuff boxes, caudal cups, mugs. I mean, Charles's image had to be everywhere to get his subjects acquainted with the image of their new king in 1660. I mean, most of them had never seen him. He was a teenager when he'd really left English shores um, as the Prince of Wales. Is that why do you think he's still such a recognisable monarch, one of the most recognisable, arguably? I think so. I mean, I think that, that, that PR... Um, uh, drive was very successful. But I think Charles himself was somebody who definitely understood the PR of kingship very well. Um, I mean, we do tend to think about Charles and his mistresses, but he was also someone who touched more of his subjects than any other monarch through the royal touch. Touching for the king's evil was a method of curing um, scrofula sufferers. Um, it was a it was the sort of way in which uh, a divinely ordained monarch could be a sanctified physician. Only the English and French monarchs did this. They would have these very elaborate ceremonies uh, whereby they would meet sufferers and, in imitation of Christ, literally lay their hands on them and claim to cure them of scrofula. Charles touched, it's estimated, around about 100,000 people in his 25-year reign. Um, so there can't have been a village in England that at some point hadn't clubbed together to raise the funds to send a scrofula sufferer to court. They would come back with these touch pieces as evidence that Charles had literally touched them. Um, so this is somebody who, who, who understands the very powerful image that that sends out to his subjects. And it's also interesting that the amount of touching that Charles did the, the peaks of it coincide with peaks of pressure during his reign, sort of peaks of political instability. Um, this is also the period, of course, of plague and fire. How did his responses to these events shape how people saw him? 
Well, again, I think that point about the PR of kingship is very important. This is somebody who um, most children first encounter in Tales of the Great Fire of London. I mean, I remember um, the, the combination of Peeps describing it very vividly, um, but also the image of Charles himself and his brother manning the pumps and being seen to pe- be, but be, being seen by Londoners um, was a huge boost to morale by contemporaries and was was widely remarked upon. Um, I mean, the the flip side of the succession in quick order of plague and fire, and then a humiliating naval defeat when the Dutch fleet sail up the Medway and capture uh, the Royal Navy's flagship and sink some others, is that this was seen as a sort of dreadful providential verdict, um, the fact that the Great Fire of London happened. 350 years ago in the year 1666, you know, 666, um, had great scriptural significance. Um, So there was a sense that all was not well at the heart of the court, Um, so it could work both ways. But in the event, in a crisis, Charles was very good. Mm. And that conflict with the Dutch, how did that cause tensions uh, with Parliament, I suppose? Well, fighting the Dutch was um, a Cromwellian innovation. I mean, most wars had usually been fought on confessional grounds up to that point. Um, But the idea that one would go to war with a commercial rival and also there was real suspicion of the republicanism of the Dutch... um, so this was a, an on. This was a hangover from the Cromwellian. This was the Second Anglo-Dutch Wars. Um, well, the, the Dutch raid on the Medway was a massive humiliation. I mean, there was. I mean, it also happened that there were very talented satirical poets like Andrew Marvell that could exploit it. But the idea that Charles really had been too busy with his mistresses and had left the English fleet unprotected and was essentially. That, that iron chain was broken and the Dutch rode. I mean, it's one of the most sort of daring naval exploits in history, but brilliantly executed and very humiliating. If you could somehow travel back in time and ask someone in this period a question, what would you ask, do you think? I think Charles II is unusual. I mean, I've done work on other figures, particularly lawyers in this period, and there I've got a whole series of very technical questions. I want to know, you know, missing evidence. Like, what did you do in these years? Um, I don't think one would get very much apart from an amazing performance of a one-to-one interview. I think I would be very interested in, I suppose, recapturing some of the aspects of Restoration London that are quite amazing. This is the little ice age in the 1680s and the idea of the frost fair uh, after the Thames froze solid for three months and these temporary booths and amusements. I mean, somebody who'd been there, I'd like to know what that was like. Mm. Um yeah, there are very evocative diarists of the period, like Pepys earlier. I suppose somebody who walked around London with its burning embers. I mean, I suppose it would be those sorts of quite, you know, quite inaccessible sensory experiences that I'd be quite interested in capturing. And so there's there's scenes like that that you'd like to witness rather than people that you'd like to speak to, in a sense. Or, or people who were there to sort of describe, yeah. If, if readers of this book were to read or... Uh, kind of see uh, some culture that was produced during this period. Are there any key key works that you think they should turn to first or that perhaps are overlooked? I'd definitely start with Pepys as somebody who can bring, you know, somebody who's so minutely in, interested in everything. I mean, Pepys's particular interests are in sort of music. and um, But that brings alive a period. One feels that even if he'd been living through the most dull years, somehow he would have managed to make them very interesting. Partly just also the sort of notions of personal frailty and 
I mean, he's somebody who's both fascinated and almost quite prurient about Charles's love life and then can't stop himself also being quite disapproving. Um, but actually another place, I mean, there are lots of places that people could go. Uh, if you talk about Peeps, that makes you think about Greenwich and the Navy, uh, but also things like the Royal Observatory. I mean, one of the, the, the subtitles of this biography is The Star King. And Charles was fascinated by astronomy, was quite a good amateur astronomer and was was very keen to establish um, the observatory, to echo the work of the Royal Society in astronomy, but it had a very practical agenda. It was to try and determine terrestrial longitude and that would help ships' navigations and command of the seas gave access to colonial empires. So it was all very practical, but also really quite far-sighted. I think there are wonderful places you can go and visit, like Ham House on the Thames, that is a sort of encapsulation of um, restoration. But then anyone who reads, anyone who's interested in the theatre, I mean, restoration drama. Uh, I mean, Charles was somebody who who loved female company, but that could be professional. I mean, he transformed the professional opportunities of women overnight by insisting at the beginning of the restoration that female parts should be played by women and not by men as they've been before. Mm. You touched there on ageing. Do we get a sense of how Charles saw himself as he aged? I think he becomes slightly more concerned about preserving his version of events towards the end of his life. So the one episode that had both haunted and inspired him through his life had been his days on the run after Worcester. Um, Now those had been written up by various people. There were lots of unauthorised accounts in circulation. There were lots of prints of him hiding in the trees. Um, But in the early 1680s, he summons Samuel Pepys, who's now um, obviously much older than he'd been in the years of the diary, to Newmarket uh, and spends several days describing in great detail his version of events. And that gives a little bit more emphasis to the Catholicism of uh, the people who'd sheltered him, that he felt that, I mean, partly Catholics were very good at having secret priest holes and understanding subterfuge um, and clandestine networks. But equally, they were very courageous and they were the ones who he felt had preserved his life on the run. Do you have any heroes in this book? No, one of the themes of the book towards the end is, and I think, yeah, I think this is one of the interesting things about biography is the afterlives of Charles. Um, he becomes, I mean, he's a polarising character at the time. I think one of the things about charismatic individuals is their capacity to, um, you know, it's quite an enviable, but also quite a elusive quality. Um, so he could clearly divide contemporaries and he's totally polarised uh, subsequent receptions. So particularly in the Jacobite era, he becomes a sort of symbol of all that was awful about the Restoration. Um, you know, He's obviously the great Whig enemy, but then it becomes the Tories' heroine. Um, and the fact that people as diverse as J.M. Barry modelled Captain Hook on him or George Bernard Shaw writes a play about him, the young George Orwell, when he was Eric Blair, wrote a play for his schoolchildren about him. Um, and he becomes endlessly fascinating to subsequent generations. Um, So that idea about the ways in which a monarch is used as a prism of contemporary concerns, I find very interesting. What would you say were the biggest misunderstandings or misconceptions that people would hold today about about the man and his reign that you perhaps like this book to address? Yeah, I think, in no particular order, I think one of the things I would like the book to do is to reconnect the first three decades of Charles's life with the set, you know, with his reign that really to understand Charles, you can't begin in 1660. You do need to understand his years growing up and his years in exile and his years also um, trying to reclaim his English, his English crown from, from Scotland. 
Um, so one of the things I'd like to do is reconnect it that way. I think I'd also like to emphasise the sheer radicalism of what had happened in those years and the unpredictability of what came after. I mean, um, there's a rector of Bath Abbey, Joseph Glanville, who says that a people that have once rebelled successfully will be ready to do so again, just like a boiled kettle will boil all again the quicker. And the, that legacy of instability would have been challenging for any monarch. So deflecting one's attention to the theatre or to mistresses or whatever is very convenient, but one shouldn't lose sight of the air of pervasive instability and trauma that he inherited. Do you think his ability to play roles almost, to have masks, you talk in the book about the idea of masks, was that his way of dealing with that? I think it's a very effective way of dealing. I mean, one of the attractive things about writing it is that this is not somebody who takes themselves incredibly seriously. Um, I mean, irony he has in abundance. And irony is not something that one encounters often in absolute monarchs. Um, This is a personal monarch who's also quite personable. And he often talks about himself in the third person. He weighs up, well, Charles Stuart would do this, but the king will do this. But actually, I'm going to do what Charles Stuart would do or whatever. So, I mean, he's got this brilliantly self-aware capacity for duality. Um, And I think that sort of shrinks even the pretensions of biographers to somehow capture just one definitive self. Are there any lessons that we can apply to the modern world from this reign or this period, do you think? Not in a direct way, because I think, I mean, there are lots of interesting parallels. Um, You know, the excitement a few days ago over the discovery of gravitational waves gives us some sense of the excitement of things like the Royal Society. I think if you wandered around Restoration London, the growth of coffee shops everywhere, that would all seem very familiar. So I think we should... You know, I'm always quite sceptical about any search for modernity. I mean, I don't think in those sorts of ways that there's really much love. I think also looking at periods and looking at people's fears and anxieties about, during the Popish plot, about the capacity for um, um, state, some forms of religious radicalism to translate to sort of political extremism is, is all very resonant. So I think I would look for resonances rather than lessons. That was Claire Jackson. Her book, Charles II, The Star King, has recently been published as part of the Penguin Monarch series. And you can read more from Matt and Claire in the April edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's issue, we're taking an in-depth look at Shakespeare and his history plays as we approach the 400th anniversary of his death. Plus, we have articles on ancient Rome, an Anglo-Saxon warrior king, and the sad fate of Catherine Howard. Look out for our April edition now in all good news agents and our many digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
you need indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Our second interview this week is with BBC Radio presenter Peter Gibbs. One of his latest projects is a documentary as part of BBC Radio 4's Costing the Earth series, which in this case focuses on the unusual history of Ascension Island. It tells a story of how, in the 19th century, what was once a fairly barren rock ended up becoming part of an interesting botanical experiment. I spoke to Peter down the line a little while back and began by asking him to explain exactly where Ascension Island is. Ascension Island is incredibly remote, really. It sits in the middle of the Atlantic, just a few degrees south of the equator. It's about uh, a thousand miles from the coast of Africa and around 1,400 miles from the coast of uh, South America. It's actually pretty much on the mid-Atlantic ridge and it is volcanic in origin. It's essentially just the uh, tip of a ginormous volcano that uh, sticks up out of the sea from uh, thousands of feet below. The actual island itself is relatively small. It's only about uh, six miles by seven miles with the uh, the highest peak, Green Mountain, at around uh, 2,800 feet. But it, it, it's a remarkable place. Lava flows, these uh, harsh-looking landscapes and red-brown cinder cones, and then contrasting with the lushness of the tropical forest on top of Green Mountain. It is quite remarkable. It's a long way from any other continents. When was it first settled by people? It was first discovered uh, in the early years of the 16th century by Portuguese seafarers on their way south, uh, round to South Asia, in fact. But uh, nobody really paid much attention to it then because it was really quite barren. It was very dry, uh, very little to offer even passing uh, seafarers. It it gets its name, actually, from uh, being sighted on Ascension Day back in uh, 1503. But it uh, remained uninhabited until, basically, when Napoleon was incarcerated on St Helena. That was in uh, 1815. And the British thought, well, we need to keep an eye on him on uh, St Helena. So the next nearest island, even though it's about 800 miles away, is Ascension Island. So they actually set up a garrison, a naval garrison on Ascension to uh, make sure that the French didn't attempt to rescue uh, Napoleon from St Helena. And uh, the island was actually designated HMS Ascension. It was uh, called a stone sloop of war of the smaller class. 
But at what point does Charles Darwin enter the story? Charles Darwin visited Ascension Island uh, during his uh, famous trip on the Beagle. He was actually on his way back to the UK, uh, landed on Ascension in 1836. And it has to be said, he wasn't overly impressed. He had stopped off at St Helena, where the people had said to him, we know we live on a rock, but the poor people of Ascension live on a cinder. So he didn't have much of a build-up. And certainly when he got there, he found it uh, very barren. There wasn't that much to interest a naturalist. A few feral goats which had been dropped off there by uh, previous uh, seafarers as a potential source of food. Very sparse vegetation. One or two native shrubs, uh, some ferns, a few grasses, but nothing much more than that. So he didn't pay it an awful lot of attention, but things took off when his big pal Joseph Hooker, who was later to become head of Kew Gardens, um, actually set off on his own adventures around the world a few years later. And uh, like Darwin, he called in at Ascension on the way back, this time in 1843, uh, by which time it had become a sort of maritime service station. But uh, the problem was really a lack of water. The southeasterly trade winds bring cloud, but not much rain. And uh, with very little vegetation on the island, it was essentially just evaporating. Had um, Joseph Hooker, had he gone to Ascension because Darwin had previously, or was it really just a coincidence? It was a coincidence, really. It was this stopping off point that uh, most vessels northbound uh, back to the UK would stop off there just to uh, do repairs, uh, top up on water if they could, if the supplies allowed it. But while he was there, and uh, when he returned to the UK, the Navy, having found increasingly that it was a problem. Water supply was a problem for the garrison there and for any passing ships. They wondered if Hooker could help. And uh, it seems that Darwin actually egged him on in the background. Um, He was also helped by his father, who was the director of Kew at the time. And he actually set in motion a plan to send shipments of plants to the island from all over the world. The idea being that they would capture moisture from the trade wind clouds that uh, cover the top of the peak, Green Mountain for much of the time. So they would capture the moisture from the cloud, reduce any evaporation from the rain that did fall. They started doing this in 1850, and actually just a couple of decades or so, the peak in the centre of the island, Green Mountain, was actually clothed in vegetation. It is essentially now a cloud forest. And they had a farm growing crops, they brought in grasses, had cattle and sheep grazing, and uh, had really quite a good operation going within the space of, say, about 20, 25 years. It's quite remarkable. How much of a logistic challenge was it to to transport all these plants to a very remote part of the world? I think back then, not too much of a problem because ships were calling in at Ascension fairly routinely. They were collecting specimens for people back in the UK. There was a lot of trade, of course, to and fro between uh, Asia and the UK, between the Americas and the UK, between uh, India and the UK, Africa as well. So there was lots of opportunity for these ships to uh, to pick up plants from these locations, just stick a few on board, drop them off on Ascension, and so little by little, the, uh, the foreign was planted up. What does this tell us about botanical knowledge in the 19th century? Because clearly this experiment was very successful. Does that point to the talent that these people had? Well, Hooker and Darwin, but Hooker in particular, was a fantastic botanist. His work still stands up uh, even today. And, you know, it's interesting looking at uh, his journal, what he wrote about Ascension and this idea of actually uh, planting up the forest he does realise the the impact that his plan would have on on the native plants. He actually says the consequences of planting to the native vegetation will, I fear, be fatal. So he did realise this at the time. In fact, that has 
come to pass uh, a number of the native plants, um, which were small ferns, grasses, couldn't compete with the uh, the vigorous forest plants that were being brought in. And, and some of them have actually become extinct. Although, interestingly, we found when we were there, one of the plants that almost went extinct, it's a, a small fern, has actually now found a niche on non-native moss which grows on the non-native trees which were actually brought in by Hooker. So, uh, you know, things do adapt, but it was interesting that Hooker realised that his plan, even though it was going to help with the logistics, and in fact, you know, there was in a way no alternative. The, the place had to function properly as a, a resupply station, and the only way to do that was actually to, uh, to take his plan through to fruition. What happened to Ascension Island after that? Did it remain under Royal Navy control? It remained uh, under Royal Navy control up until essentially the end of the uh, 19th century. This is when uh, the Eastern Telegraph Company arrived to um, actually set up a telegraph cable to link uh, the UK with the African colonies because at the time the Boer War was going on, so they needed better communications uh, back to the UK. So once they came in and established the uh, telegraph station there, they actually took over the running of the island from the Navy. And also by this time, it was becoming less important as a staging post for naval operations. In the 60s, the BBC came in and actually uh, set up a large transmitter for the uh, BBC World Service, uh, the African Service. And so for quite some time, the island was run by a conglomerate of uh, BBC and uh, what became cable and wireless and uh, eventually so it, that was handed over to the uh, UK government and now the UK government has an administrator on the island uh, to do all the day-to-day -day running of the island. It actually comes under the, the governor of uh, St Helena but uh, essentially operates independently. So what does the forest look like nowadays because I understand that you've been to visit it for this programme. It is quite remarkable to go from the arid lava flows of the plains around the coast and uh, where Georgetown, the capital, is situated to drive for only 20 minutes up this uh, windy road, hairpin bends as you climb Green Mountain. And within that space of time, you're enveloped in lush tropical forest and and it is quite a remarkable transformation to the unpracticed eye it looks fantastic it looks like a functioning ecosystem a great mix of plants not many birds it has to be said um, but then we have to bear in mind that there were virtually no animals on the island before alien invaders were actually brought in by people so uh, everything that's there in terms of birds other than seabirds that is uh, has been brought in along with animals as well there's feral sheep there are rats there are donkeys <laughs> all these things wandering about on the island but but your your perception is wow what an incredible place this is talk to conservationists though and they see it in a, a rather different light of course all these non-native species has a as I've mentioned, uh, they've uh, crowded out the, uh, the natives. It is all an artificial environment and to some extent is, is causing problems. For example, Mexican thornbush is, is their latest uh, problem. It was brought in in the 60s uh, for landscaping purposes to uh, plant up as hedges around uh, one of the villages. And now it's just gone rampant across the uh, whole island and it's really changing the look and the feel of the island quite considerably and uh, causing quite a few problems. So I think conservationists view it with a slightly different eye, but certainly, you know, to the casual observer, Green Mountain and its forest is, is just remarkable. What do you believe this episode, what lessons can it teach us about humans' ability to shape their environments? 
it shows that humans can have a remarkable effect on their environment. In fact, Green Mountain and the forest there has been suggested in, in some quarters as being perhaps a, a model for greening up other parts of the globe uh, or even perhaps terraforming other planets. It has been mentioned that uh, it may well be a useful model if we ever think about uh, trying to establish colonies on Mars. That was Peter Gibbs. His Radio 4 documentary in the Costing the Earth series will be broadcast on the 19th of April at 3.30pm. Now, one of the regular sections within the magazine is our First World War, which follows the progress of that conflict 100 years ago through the words of those who lived and fought through it. We've also been including accompanying audio clips within the podcast, and we've now come to April 1916. So here... Speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is Sergeant William Collins reflecting on the dangers of high explosive shells. Now, you, 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 during this period, you were dealing with a different sort of wound, perhaps, because this would be high explosive uh, 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 ground level. Uh, did it lead to? Were the wounds different? What's oh the... yes, oh yes, very different, very different. My goodness, they were they were much more severe, much more severe. For instance. Uh, one of the worst wounds I had to deal with when we were at uh, when we were still at uh, 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 the convent was one day uh, was a, a, a private of the, one of the Yorkshire regiments. I, whether it was the West Yorks or the Yorks, I don't remember, but it was he, it, a high explosive shell had dropped right in amongst them and had blown off both his legs halfway up the thigh. And leaving the the femur, that's the thigh bone, exposed in each case, leg as if as if they were two two two, two uh, uh, crutches. And uh, this fellow, he got this, to give you an idea of the guts of the British infantryman. All he did was he sat up on the stretcher, looked down at his legs, which had gone, and the bone sticking out. He said, "If only my missus could see me now, give me a cigarette." That was the that was the guts. And the courage of those men. What would you do for someone? What, what well, medical treatment could well, you give? Well, uh, what, 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 what I did was I took him down, get Captain Rogers to look at him. All we could do was to cover the wound up with gore, wounds up with gauze, and put him on the first ambulance away. You see, because you've got to remember that the greatest danger to that man was shock. I mean, the wounds could be dealt with, but the shock. To the, to, to the body and the brain was the greatest danger, could the we, reaction. Can we talk about the shock a little more? Yes, what? shock, shock, shock was a, 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 a condition which I'm not medically qualified to, to discuss really, but uh, all, all, always I used to hear from the medical officers that I worked with, uh, yes, it, it, it's, it doesn't look a very nasty wound, Sergeant, but believe me, uh, uh, in, 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 in the shock, you, you, you will feel the shock in about uh, uh, seven or eight hours' time, you'll get the reaction, you see, the shock, shock to the frame of the body and the mind. And he said, that is the great danger. So someone like this chap with the legs off yeah. would be, although he was sitting up and smoking cigarettes, could well have the reaction oh, the later. Reaction, the reaction would be immense. What would his chances be? Uh, well, I couldn't tell you. I'm, I'm really not, not uh, qualified sufficiently to, 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 to give an opinion. But uh, uh, if, if he were exceptionally strong, he might survive it. But he'd have to be exceptionally he'd strong. He'd have to be exceptionally strong to survive that. 
That was Sergeant William Collins. You can read more from our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the history of working class culture and student life. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>